Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're on Team Human where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make living people so much more than our algorithmically derived behavioral profiles. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff and I'm on Team Human, coming to you alive from Gray Area Foundation for the Arts, historic grand theater in the ever-resistant infiltration mission district of San Francisco. You are not alone. Playing for Team Human tonight, an artist exploring the relationship of humans and technology, Lauren McCarthy, author of Technosis, Nomad Codes, and host of the Expanding Mind podcast, Eric Davis, and the founder of Gray Area Foundation itself, Josette Melchor. We're going to engage with each one of them individually, then bring them all on stage together for a conversation. And then finally, I'll bring the microphone out into the audience to engage with you all in conversation as well. So, hey, it's funny. I used to come to San Francisco to imbibe some spiritual culture that I could bring back to New York. And now, I feel like I'm coming from New York to bring some kind of spiritual remembrance to San Francisco. I mean, have you walked around here? You've been over there? Oh my God. I used to be better dressed than most of the people in this town. But back then, it's like 1988, 89, 90, it's I, I wrote this book. I, I came here to research and I wrote a book called Siberia about the emerging cyber culture and the expansion of consciousness and all. 
And my publisher at the time, Bantam, they canceled the book in 1991 because they thought the internet would be over by 1992 when the book was supposed to come out. Just like that crazy, weird, consciousness, nutty culture. It's going to be like CB radio, you know, breaker, breaker, up and down. What I was trying to convey to them was that the West Coast was building our future reality. That the psychedelic culture, really, of the Bay Area were the only people who were experienced enough in hallucinatory reality to feel comfortable building the virtual future of humanity. But reality creation is an interesting thing. You know, in some ways my publisher was right. The reality, the Mondo 2000 reality that I thought was gonna get built ended up kind of turning into more the Wired magazine reality of, of venture capital and the, the internet kind of became the poster child for the NASDAQ stock exchange. And we've created a reality you know, but it's an interesting one. I mean, the thing that's weird about reality creation isn't just what you create, but the realities that we leave behind. You know, sometimes it's easier to see when you look at someone else's culture, you know, which is why I'm an avid viewer of Fox News. Because there's a reality there, and I watch it for a few reasons. I mean, partly I watch it because I know that part of me, I'm still racist, I'm still sexist, I'm still fucked up, and if I see it so tangibly expressed, I can reflect on it, I can see it in myself. It becomes a, a purgative and, and kind of like a weird uh, act of, of psychoanalysis by resonating with what they're saying, trying to understand where are they really coming from. And I had a really weird experience this week. I was watching the Fox News reaction to the Obama portraits. You know, the Obamas had their portraits done for the National Portrait Gallery. And these were different portraits than the ones you commonly expect. You know, usually you see the president like in this office on a chair and all. And this is, if you haven't seen it, it's Obama with like leaves and vines all around him. And then there's Michelle Obama who's, who's painted not in that sort of renaissance, whatever, style. Not that, that photorealism that some of these portrait artists are going for. It was different. You know, it, the face isn't quite modeled. It's not light-sourced like a standard portrait. And there's no background in it. And the Fox reaction, of course, was, oh my god, look at these primitive paintings. Look at all this African primitive thing. This is like, what is this? This is their final you to America, look, black people were here, you know. That was sort of their reaction, as if these paintings were some insult to the dignity of the office. And I, I tried to understand emotionally what's their reaction. And I can think, when I first saw the paintings, I'm like, whoa, oh, they hired African Americans to do this, and they brought something else. And I understand these are not what are traditionally thought of as dignified settings in Western, white, European-influenced culture. It's not realistic as we understand realism in our culture. Our understanding of dignity would be Obama, not with leaves all around him, but separated from nature. That's what dignity is, after all, is our conquest of nature, our ability to detach from all that and be so civilized. 
they don't have any of the signifiers of dignity. You know, the big desk or the, the, the pens, the presidential pens, whatever the signifiers are for what, for what dignity is supposed to be. But the question then I have to ask, well, isn't the human form dignified in itself? Isn't there dignity in, in who we are just as, as we are, particularly in nature? And then I'm thinking about realism. Okay, so even me, I look at it and I go, oh, well, these aren't really realistic. Because I've been trained to think of realism as some, some granular fidelity to photographic reality. How much resolution, how, how, how much resolution is there? That's our measure of, of reality in a highly uh, industrialized culture. And what I was thinking, though, was, well, what if there's another real? You know, this is our real, is photorealism. But what reality does photorealism leave behind? What's being expressed by this painting that's being done in the tradition of a much older culture than ours? What understanding of reality are they bringing forward that we in the West are just so willing to repress, that we in the West are so willing to say, oh, that's not real, that's primitive, that's something else. And so what if there's another real? And so what's our real, Western real? Western real is this sort of actual, instrumentalized, measurable real. And then there's this other reality. What is, what is a more virtual, essential reality. You know, the other, more developed understanding of what is real. The idea that there is something else going on here that can't be described in photorealism, that can't be described in the metrics of an industrial culture. You know, this, the interconnectedness, the, the glow. You know, what's readily apparent to indigenous populations, but actively repressed in our own. That's the hidden landscape that's just another externality to technology. It's an externality to industry and capitalism. That's the reality that I'm afraid that we are leaving behind. You know, and we recontextualize virtual reality as some kind of a technological simulation. I looked at the meaning of virtual. The definition of virtual is almost or nearly as described, but not completely or according to strict definition. It's like, oh, so that's some, some African native reality, but oh, but it's not, it's not according to strict definition, is it? No, it's not high def. No, and is high def, is that the promise of interactive culture? Is that what we were going for in that late night? Oh, we're gonna get a high def simulation here. I mean, remember the first time you played Pong? That's the first interactive experience I had. Pong, the two little white squares on either side of the screen, the little ball going through. And were you thinking, oh, this is a really accurate simulation of the table tennis experience? No, it was not the verisimilitude of Pong that made it so awesome, it was the power. It was the power to move the pixels on the screen, to take back the screen from William Randolph Hearst or whoever owned Fox and everything else. The, the African-American artists, they generate awe 
by connecting us to something other than verisimilitude. You know, verisimilitude, that's what takes us to the uncanny valley. Oh, look, that's almost real. The uncanny valley is like a, it, it's an interesting disruption. But the uncanny valley, that's not awe. There's a difference. There's a difference. It's really, it's as different as a really synthetic psychedelic and, you know, your ayahuasca trip or something. That one has that slight steeliness of industrialized culture. You know, and we're, we're living with this obsession with resolution over essence. You know, the MP3 bitrate over vinyl. It's this sort of Euclidean measurable phenomena that are the only ones that exist in this metric-driven reality. But human reality is not entirely mechanistic. I don't think so anyway. I don't think that we can simulate humanity and human consciousness digitally. You know, the, the AI brain or bioengineered humans. You know, we're bioengineering humans now, but we're classifying a whole bunch of human DNA as junk. We're saying, oh, this is junk DNA. Oh, we don't really need that. Junk DNA, like African art. You know, it's just that wasted stuff. It's not junk DNA. Junk DNA are the stories, the failed stories of our evolution. Junk DNA, who knows if we're going to need, you know, you get a nuclear bomb, all of a sudden that junk DNA is what gives you your, you know, your protection suit or something. It's not junk. I'm not willing to depart with the sh** that I don't understand what it's for. Oh, we don't know what it's for. Let's get rid of it. Could you imagine? You know, we think we can recreate a human brain. We can't even, we don't even know what's going on in a square centimeter of soil. And we're just, oh, upload my brain and that's that. No, there's lost information. I mean, it's like when we auto-tune the human voice, when we auto-tune a singer, oh, now she's on pitch. Well, what if what was actually being communicated was that off pitch, not on the note? She wasn't on, no, she's not on the note. She's pitchy. No, she's human because she's expressing something that's not in the MIDI code for that song. You know, digital. Digital is great, but digital is still a snap to grid of reality. You know, a snap to grid in a graphics program, you place something on the, in the picture, it's a here or here. It's here or here. You can increase the resolution and have it here or here, here or here, here or here, but it's never quite, ugh. It's never quite in between. You know, there's information in the liminal, in the space between this and that. You know, in the gray, in the gray area between the black and the white. That's why I love this place. Art is about retrieving and preserving and celebrating that in-between. Art, not entertainment. Right? Art is about the inexplicable, the unmeasurable, the human. Now, I find lately I've had to defend the title, the title of this show, of the title of Team Human. It's as if the weirdness of humans that I want to celebrate has been declared obsolete because there's no metric for it. It doesn't scale. 
Or from the other side, people see humans as some kind of a cancer that's wiping out nature. And why are you on team human? We humans f***ed it up. But I would argue the drive to metric clarity and high-resolution simulation of our world is not human. It's colonialism. It's capitalism. It's this false notion of progress. And it ignores the realities that we're leaving behind. No, humans are not the problem. Humans are the solution. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. So Team Human has been entirely sponsored by ourselves and our, our Patreon and all that. I ran into a startup that wanted to advertise on the show, and I looked at their product and realized this is a product worthy of Team Human. So I want to play for you now our first Team Human ad. So do you, um, go ahead. No, you go. <laughs> Crowdpilot is an app that lets you crowdsource your conversations. Bring along your friends or invite strangers to help you in any situation, like a date, a meeting, a family gathering, or just let them figure out what's going on. Your crowd pilots listen in and give you live suggestions of what to do or say. Relax, take control, take a chance, get crowd pilot. Playing for Team Human tonight, the creator of Crowd Pilot, a longtime friend of Gray Area, and my new favorite interactive artist, Lauren McCarthy. Thank you for playing for Team Human. Oh, gosh. So that wasn't a real commercial. Well, it was, but... Yeah, it, it was. Um, but, I, well, it's not a startup, I guess. Um, it was... Uh, should I explain yeah. it? Yes, okay. <laughs> um, it was an art project, and it was a, an app called Crowdpilot, and it um, was based on this performance that I did originally where I went on... Uh, a bunch of dates with people I met on OkCupid, okay and I um, paid people on Mechanical Turk small amounts of money to watch what I uh, was doing on the date. I streamed it to the web and then um, tell me what to do or say, and I'd get these directions and had to um, perform them on the date immediately. And so first I did this kind of hack hackily by myself, um, and then I this was an attempt to make it into an experience that anyone could try, um, and kind of couching in this idea of a startup language to, um, I don't know, just question, let, leave that question open about what the intention was. I mean, it's, it's part of what I like about your work, and even there's like this sort of mission statement on your website where you, where you say, I make art about what confuses me, which is such a, I mean, a beautiful thing to say. I mean, and it's the, your willingness to approach your work less as, 
work with answers than work with questions. You know, it's kind of the opposite of capitalist entertainment, where if you leave the movie without, well, what happened there? Everyone wants their money back. I mean, and yours is more, what happened there? That's what you're, that's what you're going for. You know, so this, you, Crowdpilot was before Social Turkers, wasn't it? Uh, it was after. So it was after. like taking the performance and then making So it you started with Social Turkers, yeah. which, right, as you said, it used real Amazon Turk people could watch through your phone, they could see you. Yes, yeah. On a date. Yeah. And then they would type what you should do or pick from different things. And did the guys know about it or did you just? Uh, <laughs> um, I started out telling each person at the start of the date and what happened was it would make the whole date about the project and like, oh, that's so interesting, let's talk about it. And it was a great conversation, but it wasn't a first date. Um, right. So I switched to you know, telling them after the fact, which like, after the fact of that fact, I felt not great about, but it seemed necessary in the moment to test this idea because I, it wasn't about the kind of tricking them you know, thing, right. but more about like, let's imagine we're in this future where we just do this all the time and we don't talk about it. Constantly, like we use Tinder, but we don't have to talk about it all the time. And did you get to talk with the Amazon Turk people after the people who played with it? Uh, not like a direct interview or anything, but sometimes they would send me emails about, um, you know, how they felt about it. Were they freaked out? Some of them. Some were very interested or curious, or um, and I was, I think, probably naively thinking of it as a performance for them too. Um, going back, I'm think, I think like, who said they wanted to see a performance? Maybe they just wanted to like get paid and do some work. Um, but yeah. And what did, can I, what did you pay them? I paid them about usually like a dollar or two to watch for, for which is a like a hundred times the usual. Yeah, rate. yeah, because I was trying to get it um, so that they would respond quickly within this like one or two hour date. Right. Um, and also because I felt like a little bit like I was asking him to do this kind of weird thing. So. I know. I was thinking about the, the creepiness quotient of it. And, you know, when I think about you doing it, it doesn't seem creepy. I think about me doing it, and all of a sudden it seems creepy. <laughs> yeah, I'm a woman. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, did that... Did that sort of the, 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 I know this was before Me Too and all that, but Me Too's been going on for a thousand years or so. Um, did you, did, did that enter into it? Did you think about, about the sort of the, how it works for a woman? And I mean, if a guy was using it, it would all be strategic, right? Oh, try this, try that. Oh, you'll get, uh, you know, it's almost like from some 1980s kind of Porky's movie or something, or a, you know, the digital Cyrano, uh, mm -hmm. which in a way this is, but when it's a, a when it was a woman, were they, were they being strategic, like how to get him, or was it? Uh, I felt a lot more often that they were being protective. And I mm. felt weirdly protected. Like when I was going on a date, if I ever felt like, oh, this is kind of a, um, feels a little sketchy of an area or something, I had this weird confidence of what, like, oh, well, I can look at this and see that 30 people are watching me right now. And, you know, if anything had happened, I don't think that they would necessarily, like, call the police. Um, maybe, but uh, something about just being watched made me feel, like, uh, protected in some way. And what kind of, I mean, essentially, what kind of personality from our time do you think would really want that? 
it's an, I mean, we're in an interesting moment. I mean, and I know, you know, from, from uh, you know, who wants to be a millionaire, the sort of phone a friend, you know, to get your answer to the question. But the idea of having a, a kind of a Greek chorus behind you, following you through, through things, I mean, it, it's, you're under surveillance. I mean, you're being watched. You're... Yeah. Um, but, I mean, we do it all the time now with Instagram stories, right? So... I, I guess we're not that uncomfortable with the idea. It's almost like people will pause their, wait a minute, let me, mm -hmm. let me do this, as if we're not, we're not at this party. Let's quickly find out if we're at the best party. Oh, we are at the best party. Okay, that means we're obligated. Now we got to <laughs> take pictures of our party. So it's like, where are we? You know? Yeah, and I think about also, so this was in 2013, and I, would, I did various things, like sometimes I would explain to people on the OkCupid okay chat before we met what was going to happen, or I'd explain the beginning, and um, no one ever said, like, oh, I'm out of here. They're like, okay, that's interesting. And I think about if I did that now, I think there would be a lot more people that are like, that's it. Like, I already thought this was, like, BS, all this stuff, and now, like, this is the last straw. Like, it doesn't get any more ridiculous. You mean post... Uh, uh Chelsea Manning and... Yeah, I think post that, post, like, just... Uh, I think the idea at the time also of, like, date, finding someone online to date was still not totally, like, mainstream accepted. You know, people were doing it, whereas now everyone's, you know, on these apps. And so it was more... It felt more like an experiment, whereas now people are like, oh, I'm so kind of sick of this, but I'm doing it anyway. And so to have one more thing in there, I think, would be, like, <laughs> oh, too much. And then when this evolved into, or your work, you moved into Follower, which is the one we saw the, uh, the, the ad for. So Follower, the idea is that the person gets followed by a real person. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Follower was a, um, a, is a service um, where you can get a real life follower for a day. And um, you apply through a website and then you download this app and it'll just say waiting for a follower. Um, and and is then, someone real? Is there a real? Yeah, so one day you wake up and it says you're now being followed and it starts broadcasting your location. Um, it's and like then, the game, you know, that movie, yeah, the game. Yeah. It's like you're, no, now you're being followed. Oh, okay. Exactly. Um, and then I was the follower. Um, so I'd be running down the street after you, um, just, you know, hanging out in the cafe with you or. You were the main Whatever. follower? I was the only follower, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was all of this elaborate setup so I could just follow people around. <laughs> Did you see anything particularly cool following them? Uh, I did, but everything cool was like this small moment that like, you know, people are like, oh, it's the craziest thing that happened. And it was all these, it, the coolest thing was just watching people and getting so into it and making up this whole story about who they were just by like the type of whatever food they chose for breakfast um, and spending this whole day with them and having this like really intense intimate relationship and I'd be like sweaty walking through the sun or it's raining or it's cold and then at the end of the day just like leaving and that's it and we don't talk. I mean the thing that it makes me think about you know it you go somewhere like Paris and people are just people watching all the time. You can just look at people, you go on the Paris Metro, people will just stare at you in a way that if you were doing it on the New York subway, you'd like arrest the person. And, and I remember certainly as a kid, I would just look, I would follow people, you follow people, who are they? Like in uh, Dan Klaus's uh, uh, in Ghost World, they just follow people sometimes, oh, they look interesting. And it was just sort of part of life, who is that? And now it's as if we're under so much digital surveillance all the time, or maybe staring on our phones, that, that 
almost that pastime is gone, but the experience of, of sort of the performative experience of life for one another has been, has been uh, uh, usurped by our performance for like bots or something. Yeah, exactly. And that was part of the question. Like, uh, you're so often kind of performing and hoping that, you know, pe multiple or hundreds of people might like this thing that you did uh, or this sentence that you said, but, you know, just to be watched by one person, you know, does that, could that actually be more meaningful? Did we, did we, we didn't show follower, did we? Let's no. take a look at that. I go out, I do things. I read a magazine and I find out about people. Why do I know about their lives? Somebody should be knowing about mine. I, I want to share things with people, but I, I don't want to have to talk to people and tell them what I'm doing. I think it'd be great for them to see what I'm doing. It takes time to build relationships. It takes time to touch base with people. So I don't want another relationship. I just want to have a relationship with somebody that I never have to talk to, that can just follow me and see me having a relationship with myself. I mean, beyond the, the, the film directorial I mean, brilliance of that. I mean, the, I could talk to you for an hour about how did you work with the actor to get that, that tone. I mean. Uh, yeah, so the credit goes to David Leonard, who's a friend and collaborator of mine, and we work on a lot of the videos together. And the, the audio was actually him with his, so he sends me this audio clip, and I'm like, oh man, that's like, that's because we've been searching for like what, what music or what goes over this. And I was like, oh, that's so amazing. And I'm like listening to it, and then, I hear like a turn signal and then he's like, mom, mom, you missed the turn. And I realized like he's talking to his mom and they're driving and I was like, oh, that's so great, you're driving. He's like, yeah, we were driving to our, our mother-son uh, therapist appointment. <laughs> so he had like constructed and he's like, that was all by design. Like I didn't want her focusing too much and so that we've got this heavy thing coming and uh -huh. so, yeah, he's brilliant. It was crazy. I mean, cause you could feel those, those little subtle moments, I mean, Again, it's that, it's that human factor that comes in there. And then the idea that here we are in a culture where everybody is being surveilled 24-7, one way or another, and here it's like, in some ways, it's so lonely to be surveilled by technology all the time, and nobody is looking at us. You know, and she doesn't want to perform, she just wants to be seen, you know? I mean, do you, I guess we're all feeling that now. You know, and we're just, and, and maybe it's why this stuff is so addictive. It's because it's almost like being seen. It's really close to being seen, but it just doesn't, I mean, that's the way you addict someone to something, I guess. Yeah. And then there's also the, you know, this is like surveillance is a luxury experience, right? That she's in this nice store. And this is like, this is a service for people that like, not only have nothing to hide, they need to be seen. And so kind of embedded in that is this question, like not everyone would want this, right? There are certain people like, like, or see, feel that being seen all the time and are you know, not gonna sign up for a service to get more of it. Yeah. 
Although it's funny that you know you can get 20,000 followers on your Pinterest or Instagram or something, but just one human watching you, yeah. it's like it's a whole other, yeah. you know, it's a whole other game. Well, I think we're stuck in this like, oh, I'm terrified and I'm scared because you know the government or Google or whoever is watching me, but also like I want to be seen. I want more people to like signify that they're they're watching me, and I. It, this project came out of that, like, so what am I supposed to feel here? Like, that's a complete contradiction in some mm -hmm. ways. And it's also, it's like, if at least if you have a follower, you're officially being seen. Yeah. You know, in a world where you gotta have a number, it's again, it's back to that, you gotta have a metric for it. At least now I know there's two eyeballs on me. Mm -hmm. You know, I could probably buy two followers at the same time. I can get four, right? <laughs> Well, it'd have to be four of you, but yeah. if you hired, you know. <laughs> we could make it happen. If, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I could be followed by real people. I mean, it's just, it would be so much more, I'd feel it more in my gut, I think, than, than the followers on my, whatever, my dead Facebook page. You know, the other thing that you're doing in here that starts showing up in, in your more recent work, too, is this reversal of the human with the technology. You know, this, this, and I'm always really into these notions of figure and ground, you know, that what's the subject and what's the foreground. So usually, I mean, you, you kind of have humans play the roles that technology has been playing in our life and that all of a sudden makes it apparent in this really weird way. Yeah, well, I, I think there's this thing we feel sometimes where like, oh yeah, my iPhone is working for me, but then I have to like get just the right angle so it sees my face, or like this, you know, expression detection, or Alexa, I'm talking to Alexa, but like I have to say it in just the right way so the computer can recognize me. But I'm in control, right? Right. And so uh, just that confusion about like who's working for who, or who's the machine here, and who's the who's the human or the presence. And so um, that yeah, that's a question I think about a lot, and so. Flipping it around sometimes gives me a different view on that. Yeah, I mean, the evolution of the web, certainly from these crazy, very non-standard HTML web pages to sort of MySpace where you had wallpaper to Facebook where you're a cookie cutter. You know, it becomes that instead of optimizing the technology for people, we're optimizing ourselves for the technology, yeah. for this tech, which then it just, it's so, uh, it just drains the life out of you, it feels like. You know, or for the tech, or for the corporation behind the tech, I guess, or whoever wants to concatenate your data. Yeah. I mean, you don't wear a you don't wear a uh, thing that <laughs> monitors you. One of those things. What are they called? Uh, see, I'm so old. It's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. A Fitbit, Fitbit or something. Apple Watch. Yeah. Uh, it's spooky. I mean, yeah, I know it's good for your heart or something, but you know, as long as there's utility value, let them have every piece of dough. I'll live six days longer. All right, under surveillance. Six days under surveillance is like three hours without it. <laughs> so the, 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 the culmination for now of this, of this reversal is this project you did, the one that just kind of blew my mind in, the, in, in subtlety, if anything, is, uh, is Lauren. And maybe let's take a look at Lauren and then, and then explain it. Lauren. Where are my car keys? Lauren knows that I like it a little bit cooler than Miriam does. You know, I'm usually the one that does all these little extra things. So at first I was a little bit um, careful about asking her, and now it's like, how else can we live? <laughs> 
Lauren has recommended that I get a haircut every three weeks, and let me tell you, it's helped with my uh, my self-esteem a lot. You have those friends who are kind of about you, like the friendship is about you. That's what Lauren is like. It's like a roommate, it's a friend, but we're always talking about me. It's always about me, whatever it is. And then I forget that she's around, even though she's kind of always around, or I assume she's always around. And, um, and then I'll remember she's there and I wonder if my hair looks okay. And then I can check in. I'm not some automated system. I'm not pre-programmed. Like Alexa and Siri, they don't care about you. But with this, there's nothing artificial. These are people. And with each one, I'm watching and anticipating and, and trying to figure out what is it that they need. And it almost becomes sort of like a game. Like, sure, I can turn on lights or, or run the faucet, but what is the thing that I could do that would bring a smile to their face or, or actually surprise them or just make them feel something? It's subtle, but it's really deep. I mean, when I started watching, I started thinking about, well, I wonder if Alexa's feeling that way too. You know, she's just a machine learning thing. She's just trying to serve us. Uh, yeah, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> so Lauren is a human smart home intelligence, right? So instead of it being Alexa or Jeff Bezos's algorithms listening to you or Siri. It's you in real life in Holland watching them through the, you made this apartment with all these sensors and things and. Yeah, well so normally, um, so you're talking about one version which I'll explain in a minute, but so the way it normally works is um, you can sign up on the website and then I'll, I'll come to your home and I'll install all this cameras and switches and devices all over your home and then I leave and I watch you remotely for a few days and control your home for you and try to be better than an AI because I can you know understand you as a person so I might like take action without you even asking um, and so the version that you're referring to is a special uh, kind of trial version also where I rigged up my own apartment and then people would come and stay over one night um, and I was elsewhere doing this Wow, but you could do it, you just do it in their home. So then they live their lives, and did you try to do this 24-7? Yeah, I did, so I would sleep when they were sleeping, and I, ha I wrote some, uh, you know, I had some mechanisms that would detect if someone had woken up and then call my phone so I could wake up and run to my computer. And, yeah. So you were up whenever one of them was up? <laughs> yes, yeah. And then, I mean, the obvious question, did you see? <laughs> yes. Uh, so you're always welcome to, I would tell the people you can turn the cameras away or turn them, unplug them if you want, um, if there's some private moment. Um, but yeah, there were, it's, it's really surprising the range, you know, some people are like, I'm getting changed for bed, I'm turning the camera away. And then other people are, you know, like, I think I'm not supposed to be watching this right now, yet this is my job, so I'm just going to adjust the music a little bit and <laughs> turn down the lights. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's just that people get used to it at that point, and then they trust that they're being observed. And Yeah, and I think some people are so used to it already, of just sharing every moment of their lives, that this feels like nothing. It's just Lauren, 
you know. <laughs> it's not uh, all it is, your data going to, you know, Amazon servers, for example. Right, but people are much more willing, you know, you think if it's a machine, it's like, oh, whatever, Alexa can hear me do whatever it is that I'm doing, and she doesn't care. She's just, you know, right. a robot, and 90,000 corporations m modeling <laughs> everything that I've done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas one person, one other human, seeing that, oh, God, I just looked at porn or something, and oh, no, now she knows. Yeah, and I thought that was a really interesting, exactly what you said, just a weird tension that just one person, it's only, it's all shifted. I know, it's just with, by reversing the role of human and machine, I mean, we've already done that. Right? We've done one reversal of human and machine, and now by kind of re-reversing it, you're helping people see this is where, this is where we're at, and what, is, and what does that mean about us? I mean, in some ways, it feels like it's almost going, it, it's almost going full circle, you know, that we're seeing, okay, we've outsourced all this to machines, but does that mean now we've come to the very limit of what we're willing to outsource to machines, and now we actually do want to rehumanize a little bit, that there's something that feels so wholesome about having a human in your life watching you as opposed to... Yeah, I mean, what it really made me realize was like, like on one hand, this is very critical. Like I'm, I am not necessarily advocating that we all get these devices in our homes. But then when you do get one, it's like this, it treats you like a preschooler, like the way it talks to you, the limited, like it has no personality. Like, do you know anyone that's like Alexa? No, because like, be, you wouldn't want to, right? Um, and, but I think it's super strategic. It's like they're rolling out these things like, oh, it's just a speaker that can talk. And then I don't know if anyone saw the recent Super Bowl Alexa commercials where it's got like Cardi B and some others like trying to be Alexa. Um, and then at the end she said, you know, but they're all screwing it up. And then at the end, Alexa comes on and she's like, thanks, I'll take it from here, guys. And she, you know, um, and as a friend said to me, she put it really nicely, she said, what that commercial says is like, oh, look, humans aren't perfect. We need the robot because we, we want the perfect thing, right? And that's basically what the commercial was saying, so. Right. I don't know. <laughs> right. That we I'd still go with the human, personally. I would, too. I'd rather have a human making mistakes than a yeah. robot being perfect. You know, but uh, that's, I guess because I still, I still like humans. <laughs> but, Interesting. That, yeah, I know. It's just I'm so f***ed up. Oh, my God. But, uh, but it's such a... Such a, a it, it, you're playing both to our need to be, you know, nurtured by technology, but then exposing the fact that technology isn't nurturing you. Yeah, and I mean, that's why I was so, uh, the home is this place, it's where you learn to be a person, to be a human, right? Like, from the day you're born, you get your values, you learn how to interact with people, and now we're bringing these, you know, artificial intelligence assistants in there, and they don't necessarily share the values that you share. If you ask it a question, it's not, probably not giving you the answer that your mom or your grandma might give you or your dad. Um, no, but it's giving you the answer that's going to serve the corporation. Yeah, that's, that's uh, coming from, you know, Silicon Valley or Amazon headquarters. And um, I, I think we have to question that a little bit more. And just instead of saying, oh, that's the default information. It's just like looking up some, a fact. It's not, there's values embedded there. Right. There may not be an app for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Lauren McCarthy. Thank, thank you. you for what you do. Thank you for being on Team Human.
and helping to rehumanize our relationship with technology. And we'll have you back on, okay, at the end for a conversation. So you're on Team Human, folding the fringes back to the center, a celebration of the deeply weird potentials of human awareness and activity, as well as the highly improbable rise of human beings in the first place, and an exploration of the challenges of keeping it all going in the face of increasingly automated extraction, repression, surveillance, and control. It's time to design reality on our own terms. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Hello, Team Human friends. This is Stephen here. Thanks for listening to this third episode in our live series from Gray Area Foundation for the Arts in the historic Grand Theater in San Francisco. We'll be back next week with the conclusion of these live shows featuring Eric Davis, author of Technosis, Nomad Codes, and host of the Expanding Mind podcast. Following Eric, Gray Area Foundation founder Josette Melchor will join Douglas on stage, and then today's guest, Lauren McCarthy, will rejoin the team for a roundtable discussion and audience question and answer session. Again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed these shows, please do us the favor of reviewing us on iTunes to help others discover the show. You can also find us over at Patreon. Their patrons are helping support the show and keeping this weekly effort afloat. Again, join us next week for the conclusion of this live series. Thanks for joining Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.